Richard Tice, it is very good to have you with me for 20 Questions With. You are the leader of Reform UK. You are a disruptor in politics. As far as I know, and you, you're welcome to correct me on this, you're a multimillionaire businessman as well. So you've had a lot of career success in your life. You're 59 years old. If there's an autumn election next year, who knows? It might even be on your 60th birthday. <laughs> We've got a lot to talk about. And because we very strongly disagree about certain things, I might push back on one or two answers. We'll see how it goes. But the idea of this podcast is to get a sense of you and to get a sense of what you stand for. Great. Well, thank you for having me on. It's good to chat. We've had some Twitter exchanges. We've exchanged in uh, TV studios. But yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about. And we'll agree on some things and disagree on others for sure. So first question... Why have you got it in for the Conservative Party when you were a Conservative voter, as I understand it, and you were actually a long-time donor of the party? Uh, It's very simple, actually, because they've broken Britain. They've been in charge for the last 30 years. And if everything was going well, if they'd sorted out all the problems, if all the public services worked well, if the economy was growing fast, if ordinary families up and down the country were feeling better off, if we had law and order on our streets, if You could get a doctor's appointment within a day or two and there was effectively no waiting list at all and they'd done a great job then there'd be no need for uh for any sort of uh uh, competitor type coming um uh into the political space but the truth is that they've uh, they've broken britain their incompetence their their waffle frankly their spin and in some cases downright lies has led the country to a terrible place and in a sense the other political parties, whether it be Labour, Lib Dems and ourselves, I suspect that's the one main thing we can agree on. And you, you have to punish failure like that. In the world of business, if someone lets you down constantly, always talking the talk, taking out for lunch, it's all very nice, but they never deliver, then ultimately you fire them. And that's what the British people need to do with the Conservative Party. What's fascinating about this, and you mentioned Labour, is that you might get Labour cheering you on at the next election because there seems to me to be a major difference between next year's election, 2024, and that's when we think it will be, and the election of 2019 when Boris Johnson won his 80-seat majority because then Nigel Farage stood down lots and lots of Brexit party candidates. And you're, I'm sure, going to tell me now that you are absolutely committed to not doing that this time. And therefore, the size of Keir Starmer's majority, perhaps even his very victory in the election, if that does happen, is in your hands. Look, the reality is, as far as I'm concerned, there's actually no difference philosophically, practically now, between the two main parties. They both stand for high taxes, high nanny state regulation, pro-mass migration, and pro-net zero. And the result of that, we are seeing all too clear, which is the zero growth. And I don't think there's any prospects for growth under this type of regime. And so I want to provide a a serious, clear alternative. And look, as I say, the two main parties, they're two forms of uh, socialism. You've either got con-socialism or red socialism. I think they're both a catastrophe. I think it's really important that everybody in England, Scotland, Wales has the choice to put their vote uh, and to cast a different vote. Look, we all know the first past the post system is, it's very, very difficult for small parties. I think it's patently unfair. Every vote is not equal. 
So, but that's the system we've currently got. Obviously, we're campaigning for that to change in due course. Look, Rome's not built in a day. One thing is for sure, though, if you want to affect change, you've actually got to stand up and try and change things. You can't do it just um, uh, just whinging and whining from the touchlines. What would happen in what I think is the highly unlikely circumstance that Nigel Farage said, sorry, Richard, I'm, I'm the president of your party at the moment, but I'm going to go off and join the Tories before the next election. <laughs> what would you say to him? Um, I'd say he's taken leave of his senses, but uh, fortunately I know that um, that's not going to happen. That's uh, just not going to happen whatsoever. He's more cross with the Tories, frankly, than than almost anybody, because on some of the key issues that he's campaigned for decades, be it Brexit, be it high levels of immigration, actually the Tories have basically just betrayed all those who put their trust in them back in 2019. We thought the job was done. We thought that they would actually do what they said they were going to do, and we made the mistaken assumption that they were going to be competent. Let me give you another scenario. Nigel Farage comes to you, or indeed you go to him, and say, look, Richard, you've done a fantastic job. You've got us up to, what, 6 8 sometimes 10% in the polls. 10 or 11 regularly now. I mean, keep it up to date, Matthew. We're, we're, well, most of our polls now are in double figures. Just after Christmas, I think, it'll, I think we'll hit 12%. Okay, and people can check for themselves. My question to you is, is there a scenario in which Nigel Farage takes over the reins, becomes leader of the party again? I say again because it was the Brexit party and he was the leader of that. Would you step aside happily if you felt he could win a greater percentage of the vote and perhaps more seats than you might? I'm on the record as saying the more help that Nigel feels able to give between now and the election and indeed after the election, whenever it is, the better, because clearly he's been around for a very long time. He's got a very strong sense of political judgment and timing. He can add huge value. And I've no doubt at all that that he would help boost the poll rating and attract additional votes. And that would be a very good thing. So the more help, the merrier. And here's my point. Unlike most people who go into politics, Matthew, for me, it's not about personal ego or titles. It's about action, actually putting forward serious, uh, serious policies that we think are right for the way that Britain is is run and managed. And as I say, I just I want to be involved in shaping and influencing. So that is uh, my position. I'm I'm much more focused on that than than titles, frankly. So that was actually going to be my next question: the question of motivation. Spell it out for us even more clearly than you just have. You've earned a lot of money in the business world. What is in it for you? Why are you so involved? Why are you giving so much of your time to politics? What is it that really motivates you? And where is where does ego stand? I mean, ego is a part of all of us to some extent, isn't it? But where's the balance between ego, you know, personal advancement, the idea, <clears throat> or the perhaps distant idea, given the party you lead, of power? Although, as I say, you you have a disruptive force and actually wanting to change this country, in your view, for the better? Yeah, look, bluntly, uh, Matthew, there's no pockets in a shroud. And, you know, some people want to just keep earning more money, and that's fine, that's good luck to them. But but how much do you need? And actually, surely, much better to, to have a real legacy, whatever it is, whether you're getting involved in in the arts or in, in culture or in a charity or in my world, shaping the influencing political debate and, and how the country is run. I mean, I think that's that's very, very important. It motivates me, it engages me. I've, I've always said for 
I said I wanted to be involved in business for give or take 30 years, try and make some money and then try and give some something back. You never quite know how it takes you, but I've always had an interest in in politics and current affairs. Back in 1997, when Gordon Brown was appointed Chancellor, I wrote him a long three or four page letter setting out why we should not join the euro. So, you know, this is actually, it goes back a long way. And I've just got a very strong view about how to run things. I've got a successful track record in running small, medium and large stock market, multinational, stock market quoted multinational businesses. So, yeah, look, I'm, I'm happy to back myself. You actually have already been an elected politician because you were an MEP in the dying days of the UK's involvement in the European Parliament. What was that like, Richard, for you, given your, your Euroscepticism? You were going into the heart of the beast, as you might see it. And do you actually want to become an MP? Would you celebrate winning a seat at the next election? So on the latter point, yes, I do want to become an MP. I'm standing again in Hartlepool, where I stood in December 19. And that's a it's, it's a great constituency, a great community. And it would be a huge honour and, and privilege. So I certainly would celebrate that. And yes, it was a very weird feeling going into the heart of the beast of Brussels as a elected MEP. We always had confidence that us being elected would mean that it was a fairly short, uh, short tenure. And, and indeed it was. It was whatever it was, about seven or eight months. And I very deliberately, uh, in a sense, engaged with it as little as was responsibly sensible. And but it, but it did educate me and it did reinforce my view that we would make absolutely the right decision. I want to get stuck into some of your policies now. So let's start with this. What would you say is your flagship policy? What is the policy that you hope will draw people towards reform or perhaps already is drawing people? I think we've got a number, to be honest, Matthew. But the first one is that actually we've got to make work pay. For too many people on modest or low incomes, frankly, because of what the Tories have done to taxes, work doesn't pay. And you're therefore, you've got a situation where millions of people are trapped in that, that sort of position where you're not sure whether you should be on benefits or whether actually going into work. What are you going to end up better at the end of the week? So our key policy is to lift the starting point at which you pay any income tax from £12,500 to £20,000 a year. But that's an extra £30 a week, give or take, net in people's pockets, which is material in helping pay bills, put food on the table, pay your rent uh, for many people. It frees up 6 million people plus from paying any income tax whatsoever. That's that's literally the best uh, pay increase uh, that people can have it also changes that that dynamic as to whether you're better off on benefits or not. If you can work, you should work, but you've got to make work pay. You've got, you've got to motivate people to work. And you pay for it, very simply, in our view, by cutting out the vast amount of wasteful, unproductive public sector spending at multiple levels. And, and that's absolutely essential. So that's our key economic policy. And actually... Many people across a variety of parties or no parties understand what we're saying and think that it would be transformational. And, and here's the thing. What the Tories have done is exactly the opposite. They froze the starting point so that they didn't take account of inflation at that starting point of £12,500, which has dragged 
millions more of the lowest paid into paying income tax. It's made the lowest paid even worse off. It's 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 totally regressive. Frankly, it's reprehensible. Lots of questions flow from that. The first is on public services. I mean, many would say that public services are already stripped bare, that we have a, a healthcare system in crisis, the NHS in crisis with massive waiting lists, social care in crisis. Are you saying you, you want to strip further from those? No, services? no, actually, um, they are in crisis, but they're in crisis because they're badly managed and they're focusing on the wrong things. If you look at average uh, healthcare spend in the UK compared to the OECD average, we're almost bang on the European average, actually. We're not spending too little money. We're just spending it incredibly badly. Productivity in the public sector is a disaster. It's gone nowhere for 20 years. It's getting worse. And it appears bluntly, the more we spend, the worse the public services. Here's the key point which proves this. right? The size of the state now, Matthew, it, it represents almost one in two pounds of the economy spent every year. 20 years ago, it was a, it was just over one in three pounds, right? And yet most people who've been around for that long, who've used public services, would say that they are in a much worse state. So we've massively increased the amount of spending, but the quality of the output has gone down. And much of that, I'm afraid, is because it's mismanaged, money is wasted everywhere. I was literally at an event a couple of days ago, someone came up to me, in fact, a lovely couple, both work in the NHS. They said, we need to tell you in a Zoom call for an hour about the waste and the mismanagement because it's off the dial. So this might very well terrify people. And I want to clear up two things. One, would you commit, do you commit to keeping our healthcare free at the point of delivery? That's absolutely, absolutely. Of course, that's, and, and the truth is actually, in most Western nations, you don't pay when you, when you receive healthcare at the point of delivery. You pay for it in different ways. We pay it through a general tax system. Other people pay it through a variety of other ways. The key point is, yes, it's free at the point of delivery, but what it's got to be done is it's got to be well managed. And actually, it doesn't have to be delivered by a huge uh, monolith that's, that's very badly managed. I mean, when we had almost no debate about waiting lists because they had, had been reduced dramatically, was about 20 years ago under the Blair regime, when they had very significant use of the independent healthcare, and indeed some use of uh, overseas healthcare to get waiting lists down. And, and it's interesting that actually I think it's, we're talking about reform, we're streeting from Labour's talking about reform, and it, the only party that's not talking about reform in the NHS appears to be the, the Conservative Party. So it would continue to be paid for through taxation? Yes, I, it, it continues to be paid for through taxation, but there's a variety of different ways of actually delivering it. Still, though, let's be absolutely clear before anybody does uh, get concerned, still free at the point of delivery. And the other part of this follow-up question is, are you saying you would put less money in than the Tories are at the moment? Um, no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that you've got to spend it much, much better. You've got much, get much better outputs. And you have got to introduce a sense of, of competitive tension into more areas of the NHS. There are certain areas where it's done. Certain specialists provide certain, independent specialists provide certain services. But it's just, the simple fact is, just pair it back. We're spending about the European average per head per year. Our outcomes, in particular, on, on some of the most pernicious diseases like cancer, like heart disease, our outcomes are right at the bottom of the league table. 
And that's shameful, absolutely shameful. And we have to have the courage. And I think we are beginning, we're just at the beginning of this point, to have the courage to say, actually, it's not good enough. The outcomes are not good enough. Something fundamental has got to change. I'm sure there are some who would push back on that. But let me move on to welfare, because you have this aim, many might see it as an admirable aim, to lift the lowest paid out of the tax system, as you've been very clear about. What would you say to those who fear that you would therefore strip away the welfare state, that you would punish people on benefits? No, it's not about punishing people on benefits, far from the opposite. I think, look, there's over 5 million people on out-of-work benefits at the moment. Many of them actually want to work, but are trapped in this, this sort of financial calculation at the end of the week. Well, how am I better off? And that's why our policy is the right policy, because ultimately, at the end of the day, money does talk at the end of each week. And if people can see that by going to work 40 hours a week, not 16 hours hours a week, you're going to be better off, then very quickly, many, many hundreds of thousands of people will do that. And I think that's a very good thing. So I want to encourage and motivate and infuse people on benefits who can work uh, to, to go to work. And look, we should be world leading at a really top quality safety net benefit system that provides the protections for those who genuinely need it. The disabled, the vulnerable, the sick, those who are genuinely unemployed. But equally, there, there are too many who, for a variety of reasons, are either trapped on it or have found ways to use it as a lifestyle choice. And, and ultimately, we've got to motivate people back into work. And if you can work, you should work. It's not only good for you, it's good for your children, for your community, your family, everybody around you. You want to present yourself, Richard, as a serious, grown-up politician who can be trusted. And before we get to immigration, which is obviously an essential part of your message and your raison d'etre, I want to touch on net zero and climate change. And this is one of the areas where people might worry. It might seem to to some that you've latched on to this anti-net zero policy as a sort of populist move. You yourself, I think, are green, pretty green in the way that you live your life, you cycle around. I think you've brought in green technologies in some of your businesses. You want to breathe fresh air as you move around London. I'll put it to you that overwhelmingly science tells us that A, climate change is real, and B, we human beings are contributing to it. Surely, in a a grown-up, sensible conversation like the one we're having now, you you wouldn't push back on that, would you? No, look, I've always said, I'm very clear on it, of course climate change is real. It's been real for billions of years. It'll be real for the next billion years. Here's the point, though. Um, And and yes, the likelihood is... Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the the percentage of CO2 in the atmosphere is increased by about 50% in the last 150 to 200 years. Uh, but it's still actually historically really quite low levels. The likelihood is that man-made CO2 emissions may contribute to that warming. The percentage of that is, is open to scientific debate. Um, but here's the thing. First of all, should we worry about it? And then secondly, what do you do about it? Uh, if you think it would make any difference at all. Now, my my issue is that actually, if we warm a bit, 3,000 years ago in the UK, it was about two degrees warmer than it currently is. The Romans were growing grapes in Yorkshire, making delicious claret. You know, we can adapt to changing temperatures. 
because we're smart, we're intelligent. Um, likewise, you know, CO2 is not a poison, it's plant food. And the reality is you need CO2 for photosynthesis. Uh, in greenhouses in the back of your garden, you'll find CO2 levels of double or treble, that which is in the general atmosphere. So I think there needs to be a, a sensible, rational debate about it. Um, of course, we all want cleaner air in our towns and our cities. And look, I'm lucky enough, I've, I've, I've got a uh, an electric car, a Tesla. It's a great piece of technology. I buy it main, I bought it mainly actually because, believe it or not, I quite like the quiet. I'm not a sort of petrol head that likes these loud engines, frankly. So I love it for the technology. Um, I learn a lot from it. And yes, I put solar panels on the roofs of my industrial buildings, my, my business interests, because that's the sensible way Right, because that reduce if you generate electricity and sell it to the occupier, you're reducing capacity on the grid. In a sense, everyone's a winner and, and you're you're reducing emissions. I'm slightly concerned about the fact that those solar panels are generally made in China using coal-fired generated electricity. But here's the thing: I don't think there's no evidence that I've seen that if you get to net zero tomorrow, it'll make any any real difference. To climate change indeed the ipcc itself in its latest annual report the sixth annual report with regard to sea level which is one of the things people are most concerned about sea level rise they say that if you get to net zero tomorrow it would take between 200 and a thousand years to make any difference to sea level rise my point is we'd be better to adapt where you're concerned about sea level rise build some defenses than to impoverish ordinary people who can't afford huge increases in energy prices uh, for something that I don't think will make difference to climate change. The climate is affected by multiple factors, solar variability, volcanic activity. We've literally just seen a huge volcano in Iceland. That will have an impact. That volcano is of a scale. It will have an impact on temperatures over the coming years and sea level oscillation. These are huge things which are much bigger than CO2 levels in terms of the impact on the climate. So I'm I'm very realistic about this. And I just happen to believe, look, I'm all for uh, reducing emissions, but there are many other more harmful emissions than CO2 levels. I'm much more concerned in London, where I live, about the toxic air that's pumped out of the, uh, the huge um, uh, chimneys that come out of the tube, because the, the air in the tube is much more toxic than the roadside air levels. And London's air is the cleanest it's ever been. So I just want a rational, uh, sensible debate about it, uh, as opposed to this constant fear-mongering and scaremongering and, and impoverishing ordinary folk. There's a lot a lot, there's a lot to deconstruct there. It's a whole mishmash of thoughts that I, I've no doubt would many of which would be pushed back on very seriously by serious climatologists, serious climate scientists, Richard. I mean, just as an example of a, a, a gas that is very dangerous for the atmosphere and that is methane and that of course comes from cows <clears throat> farting in part so there's a whole issue about our meat intake but scientists I think would overwhelmingly reject a lot of what you say there and isn't there aren't you onto something you haven't mentioned this but are, wouldn't you be onto something if you were trying to say look Climate change is real. You look at the graph for the last however many decades, we are getting warmer. M mankind is clearly contributing to that. A, what a fantastic business opportunity for us as a country. B, let's be a world leader in this so that we can influence beer moths like China and drag them 
away from polluting the world, but see, and this is an important point, that our policy in combating climate change and in reaching net zero has to be done equitably, where we can at least, so that the poorest in society don't pay a disproportionately high price. Isn't that where the debate could okay. be? <clears throat> let me let me pick you up on a few things. First of all, your point about methane. Yes, it's correct. But methane only lasts about 12 to 20 years. And then through a process called hydroxyl oxidization, it dissipates uh, and disappears. So um, we shouldn't be overly concerned about that. Um, uh, with regards to the uh, the next point about um, uh, sci- there are many scientists who completely different disagree. There's a new report out by Norway's equivalent of our Office for National Statistics that actually said, based on all the, the the real-time data that they've looked at, they're not satisfied that there is sufficient evidence that man-made CO2 emissions have made a significant or meaningful contribution to the growth in temperatures in the last 200 years. So there is significant disagreement. I just am not going to accept this issue that all scientists agree. They don't. They have to have a grown-up property debate. But you've just, you literally agreed with me because you said you don't want the least well-off the lowest earners in society to suffer. Well, it's the least well off in the UK, right, who are suffering the most. KPMG, the respected worldwide uh, management consultant, uh, accountants, um, they produced a report earlier this year saying that the average household in the UK, because of net zero, will have to pay an extra £1,000 every single year for at least the next decade. That's a post-tax figure. Pre-tax that's about twelve to thirteen hundred pounds. Most households just can't afford this stuff. We're already paying almost a thousand pounds more for utility bills than we were two or three years ago, even though the gas price is back where it was. The cost of that, and again, this is a huge debate, which I accept that some of your listeners will push back on. My argument is that the cost of renewables, the subsidies involved, is adding to those costs very significantly. I've no problem with renew with you know, renewables and things. My issue is, if the subsidy involved is so great, and if the beneficiaries of that subsidies are overseas-owned investors, and that many of the jobs are going overseas, we're the losers. So let me just, I want to move on to immigration, just to say that it's really important with science that there is debate where there's scope for debate. But it is also really important for people in positions of responsibility, such as yours, to make sure that everything you say on such a critical issue, and I would argue that the cost of not acting on climate change, including, of course, for the most impoverished, would be disastrous in the future. Not least, by the way, because with climate change comes migration. And the migration crisis, if one sees it as a crisis that we've got at the moment, could be greatly amplified if we don't act. But but here's, here's my point. I agree with you. But my point is the cost of adapting to climate change that we can't control is much, much cheaper than trying to mitigate it and failing because actually it's not controllable. The bigger impacts are not controllable. That's a key debating point that we're sort of not really having. And, and I think we should talk. About. And we could debate about this endlessly. We and there are, people, there are people better placed than I am to hold you account for your views. All I would just finish on this issue by saying is I ask you as someone who is concerned about this who is a a British citizen but also is someone who lives on our planet 
please make sure, it's a strange request, but I'd ask all politicians, build your policy, build your policy assumptions, build everything you say around an honestly held position on the science as you best understand it, and then how to deal with the consequences of understanding the science. Don't be populist about it, because this really matters. It does matter, and I read a huge amount on this, probably more, frankly, than I suspect uh, all of the politicians in the House of Commons. And so, yeah, I'm building that. We constantly learn. And science, of course, Matthew, changes. And, and scientists challenge each, each other, and data changes and evolves. So, yeah, I'm looking at it very closely, and that's how we build our policy position. I would suggest that the science, just to reiterate, because it is important, is is settled on the idea that we are getting warmer and we are contributing to it. But let's move on to immigration, if if we may. What motivates you in trying to bring down net migration to the UK? And is there an arbitrary figure, say, of zero net migration that you would like to achieve? What motivates me about the migration debate is that uh, fundamentally the role of government is to look after British citizens. And very simply, in the 1990s, real wage growth in the UK for ordinary citizens was about 2.8% a year. Uh, Compounded over a decade, that's about 30%. Between 05 and 15, real wage growth in the UK was about zero because we started to have significant inward immigration, mainly because of freedom of movement with the EU. So your 30-year-old plumber in 2015 was 30% poorer on a relative basis than their confrere in the 1990s. And the chair of the OBR has admitted recently that actually um, large-scale immigration per head is not adding to GDP. We've all been told a, a serious lie by politicians that it is good for our individual uh, wealth and earnings per head. It's not. That that myth has now burst. The OBR in their latest report accompanying the Chancellor's latest uh, annual statements has admitted such. The economy is not growing, right? We've got uh, a net migration of give or take three quarters of a million people, which means per head, we're all poorer. So that's the first point about, about the finances. And the next point is, look, it's a perfectly reasonable debate to say, we want to grow the population by, let's say, five or 10 million over the next 20, 20 years. If you're going to do that and have that debate, and if people say, let's do that, then your next point is, well, then you've got to invest in the infrastructure, the housing, the doctors, the hospital beds, and everything that goes with that. We didn't do that 20 years ago when the population was eight to 10 million less than it is now. That's why the pressure on, on everything you talked earlier in this interview on, on healthcare and social care, the pressure is is growing hugely. And with that pressure and with that lack of growing in wealth, actually the quality of everybody's life reduces. So my point is, I want smart immigration, not mass immigration. Smart immigration is where you you bring in high-skilled, highly qualified people to fill the skills gaps that you've got, hopefully short-term, in in one's own country. Now, roughly about 450,000 people leave the UK every year, they emigrate. So you could sensibly welcome a similar number every year in the areas and the skills that you're short. So you could genuinely say, as many do, and I I fully accept, we've got shortages in healthcare. That is a fundamental area. So that should fill a chunk of that that quantity um, and many others. Um, But it's got to be of a a 
in my view, a salary threshold that should be usefully above the, the average. And simultaneously, what you've got to do is you've got to train up your own people. All these politicians, particularly in the Tory party, have banged on for years saying we're going to fill the skills gap locally. And yet they keep a cap on training places. They, they charge nurses um, huge uh, tuition fees to do degrees and things. So I just think that our policy has, has failed the British people. I think it's daft, not smart. And I want a smart policy. That's what I want. Just to be clear, when I was talking about the pressure on the health and social care systems, I wasn't attributing that to immigration. And indeed, as you have just said, there are skill gaps or workers gaps in these areas that have to be filled. Otherwise, yeah. our mums, our dads, our grandparents yeah. <clears throat> really, really suffer. And yeah. what, what was it in the last year? We, we've given sort of 140 odd thousand visas, I think, to people working in health and social care. If we hadn't had those people, then my father who died in October, his end of life care might have been very different because the, the, the people who looked after him to a man and a woman were immigrants to this country. So we have to be clear about that with you, I, I, I suggest, has to be clear about that to those who might vote for you, that immigration has a place in this country and without it, we could be in real danger. But that's exactly what I've just said. Yes. You could be smart about it as opposed to but, what the Tories have done, is be completely daft about it. But that does mean that you can't set an arbitrary figure. You can't say to people, like the Tories did at the start of, of the David Cameron years, they, they talked about getting immigration, I think net migration figures, net immigration figures down to the tens of thousands. You can't honestly tell potential reform UK voters that we need to get it down to, say, zero because you don't know what the skill gaps are. And no, you see, that, that's, that's the bit I don't accept. We've got a record high population, and we've got a record number of people on out-of-work benefits and uh, who are not in work, education, or training. So there's a massive mismatch. We haven't got a people shortage. We've got a willing worker shortage for the very reason that I touched on right at the beginning. Yes, we've got a skills gap, and we've got too many people for whom work doesn't pay, and that's why in our healthcare policy, in order to get more people on the front line of both social care and health care the quickest way to do that and i'm sorry to be bluntly financial about it is to motivate people to retain existing trained staff and to recruit back into the system recently departed staff who've departed for all sorts of reasons that's why i would have three years zero basic regular income tax for all people on the front line of health and social care it'll be transformational to the number of people working in the system and this is, you just highlighted, the situation is urgent now. We can't afford to wait to train people. We, we should be training more people sort of on the job rather than in the classroom. So that's why I've looked at practical solutions to the serious challenges and problems that exist today. But much of what you say might sound reasonable to people, and yet you know that if you set an arbitrary figure, that you are a hostage to your own fortune as a politician because you don't, you can't be certain of how many people you need coming into this country? Uh, we've got to improve the quality of life people within this country. And I repeat what I've just said. We've currently got a record population and we've got a record number of people not contributing to the economy, not working. There's a massive mismatch. Now, coordinating that will take some time, but we've got to do so much better. And, and you've got to change the whole financial dynamic for people going in the critical area of healthcare. We're not alone in this challenge, Matthew. 
nations around the world, be they developed or undeveloped, uh, also have got huge healthcare issues. And actually, there is something morally, morally unethical about borrowing stroke, yeah, borrowing trained healthcare workers from developing nations and bringing them to the UK. They may return to their home nation, they may not. But I think we we this owe is, it to this them is and old, ourselves. This is an old Brexiteer argument rehashed, isn't it? That the EU... Well, I'm a somehow, Brexiteer, so yes. <laughs> yes, but it was a sort of... The idea that the EU was a conspiracy against people from Africa and India and, and, and no, other I'm parts of the world. I've never said that. But, but look, I, I just think we've got to train our own people. When I was when I was 18, back in whatever it was, 1982, friends of mine who went into the nursing profession, they learned on, on the wards under matron literally from the moment they arrived and they did a bit of classroom work all of that seems to have changed and gone they now have to end up with a 30 to 40 grand debt on a student loan the whole thing's insane okay will you or will you not give an arbitrary figure if you were to be prime minister after the next election of net immigration figures to this country yeah i I think it's perfectly reasonable to say on a four to on an electoral cycle call it a four to five year period i i think our policy of one in one out that's net zero, smart immigration. I think that's perfectly reasonable and responsible. That's a sufficient time period, Matthew, to properly be motivating and training our own people. Well, it isn't, say, in the first year. So if your health secretary comes up to you and says, Richard, you've set this arbitrary target, but hang on, hang on a moment, we've still got a massive gap in our social care or our health yeah, but, but system. Yeah, but I've just proven to you, look, 450,000 people emigrate every year. You've highlighted that about 140,000 healthcare workers... So they could be the first 140,000. With the greatest respect, when you look at the 800 job titles on the skilled worker visa list, which I have read and actually been through, in the nicest possible way, we don't need um, as skilled workers to bring in ballet dancers and choreographers and things like that. No more students. No more students. What, no more students, or if if actually there are desperate people, genuine asylum seekers who want to come to this country, if if we've already filled our, your quota, your arbitrary quota with health and social care workers, say, sorry, guys, you can't come in because I've got this arbitrary, uh, arbitrary limit. No, the student thing is different, and the student system is being massively abused at the moment. We were welcoming about 200,000 international students, fairly static number, through the 2010 decade, but <clears throat> they've... They've changed the rules and all of a sudden it's gone absolutely through the roof and it's now, including dependents, 650,000. And I've got examples of huge abuse in breach of all the rules. But the real the real main thing that, that has changed is because after you've done a degree here or a master's here, you qualify for a graduate worker visa. That didn't exist before and that's the reason. So you could still welcome students, but they can't work here unless they've joined into, for example, what we've just been talking about, the healthcare. Uh, so so you take why, why don't you just take students out of the net migration figures? If if they're not allowed to work here after uh, they've studied here, then essentially that is a separate category. Absolutely, that that's that's a clear point with regard to asylum seekers. Look, on a on a medium term basis, there's no one who's been more welcoming uh, and more generous to asylum seekers. We've been right up there in the United Nations tables over many many years. I think we should be very proud of that record. Uh, but we should have we need a genuine syst- asylum system that works and that is not abused and manipulated. Before we move on, and we've just got five main questions left, I'm going to push you on that. You get to your quota level as prime minister. And actually, you find that of that 
four, five hundred thousand, whatever it is. There's no room for any asylum seekers at all because they've been taken up in healthcare or social care or whatever other areas there are with skill gaps. So you find that actually we, we're able to take no asylum seekers at all. No, you, would, would you be happy with that? No, because that's not how it works. What how it works is you've got your four fifty thousand as a as a four to five year average within which you have an allocation for asylum seekers. If you took our ten to twenty year average uh, over a long period, then then you have an allocation for that. And, and here's the point about uh, an asylum seeking system. That is genuinely uh, that genuinely works and is not exploited is that you then rapidly train those people <clears throat> to contribute to our society and obviously logic would dictate that you try and steer them if possible not always possible I fully accept to the areas where you know you've got skills shortage you can't force someone to be a, a healthcare worker but you could make a a fairly strong point for example and would you make an exception if there's a, a crisis such as you of course. Of course, and that's why I say it's over a it's over an electoral cycle. Call it four to five years, and but equally with Ukraine, for example, we should be we. Should, I mean, many Ukrainians hope we all hope the war will finish, and I'm quite sure many of the Ukrainians will want to return to their home nation. Some will want to stay here. We would obviously want to try and be um, training and, and motivating those Ukrainians who want to stay here into areas where we've got we've got shortages. Let's talk about the boats. The Prime Minister of Italy would be described by many as a far-right politician. Since she has come to power, my understanding is that many more people have come to Italy on boats across the Mediterranean than they had in the year previously. That's loosely my understanding. In other words, getting control of the boat situation is not at all easy. Rishi Sunak said to us at the beginning of the year that he would stop the boats this year. He's now boasting that he's stopped a third of them. Really, if you were Prime Minister, can you honestly look the British people in the eye and say you would stop the boats? And could you do that without breaking our international commitments, breaking the law and endangering lives? Uh, Tragically, four people, as I understand, in the last week have died in the English Channel because politicians and leaders have failed to do what needs to be done. Now, 10 years ago, Australia, against lots of international pressure, uh, they changed their policy and they had a pushback policy and they picked up and they took back. And uh, that stopped the boats crisis in going towards Australia. I've read the international treaties under which we are legally perfectly entitled to pick up and take back to places like Dunkirk and France. And that is the kind and compassionate thing to do. It shows proper grown-up leadership. Not only should we do it here, we should do it across the whole of the Mediterranean. Every Everybody should be picked up and taken back. That was in the mid, I think over 2,000 people have sadly lost their lives this year. You can't just keep doing, saying we're going to be kind and compassionate in the knowledge that people are going to die on the high seas. So we're entitled to do it legally, but what it requires is courage and political will in the face of an avalanche of heart thumping from human rights lawyers and folk at the United Nations. But no one else has got a solution, Matthew, that will stop this. Australia stopped it. And if I was in charge, I know I would stop it. And I know I'd have the support of the vast majority of the British people. So just to dive into a bit of the detail on that, firstly, there'd be those who say you couldn't do this legally. But secondly, if you could, 
Why have the Tories not done it so far? Surely because they haven't sh- got that. They haven't got that courage and political. Well, hang on. Will isn't it about the French? Don't you need the cooperation of the French to return people to their waters, to their shores? Look, the reality is that uh, it would be it would be even easier if the French did it in the same way that the Belgians are now doing it. So boats started to leave the Belgian shore. It's a bit of a longer journey, but the Belgian authority said. We're not going to have that here. We don't want a magnet of people coming here to set off from our beaches. So they've picked up, they've taken back their own shore. It's stopped. But the French haven't. The French haven't haven't. done that. But but I say, I've read the international treaties. We are entitled to do it. And if the French want to sue us, then they could sue us. That would take a year. The whole thing stops within a fortnight because you take everybody back. The business model stops. It's over. That's what happened in Australia. And we know it works and we should copy it. And you then show leadership to the Mediterranean. It's not good enough for people to say you can't do it. Uh, it's, It's not on. People are dying on the high seas. And in my view, I'm going to be very clear about this, Matthew. And you may not like it. Your listeners may like it. The blood on the hands for these deaths is as much with the politicians who fail on this as with the vile people smugglers who organize the trade. Okay, to be clear, you're saying you wouldn't endanger people's lives. You wouldn't you wouldn't sort of drag people out of their boats dangerously. You certainly wouldn't physically push the boats back. You're saying you would rescue people, as you would see it, from the sea, from a dangerous position. And then you would take them back in your safe boats, British boats, to the beaches of France. And I would say to you two things. One, that would have to be done safely because you wouldn't want to have blood on your hands. And secondly, I put it to you again that the French wouldn't tolerate it. They simply wouldn't tolerate British boats entering their waters without permission and dumping migrants or asylum seekers on their beaches. Let's be very clear. Firstly, of course it will be done safely. And secondly, it's legal. You're entitled to go into French waters, perfectly entitled. These people are breaking the law. The, The people in the boats are breaking French domestic law, right? In the boats, the people organising the boats, they're all breaking the law. And we're perfectly entitled, under international rules, the rules of sea, to pick them up safely and take them back. And and here's what I actually think will happen. I think the French would respond to that leadership. There'd be a bit of bluster for for a week or so. And then what you actually do, you have a joint processing centre in northern France. You process people rapidly, quickly, fairly, appropriately, the vast majority of economic migrants, you would return. And that reduces the, the magnet factor through France, which is causing the French huge problems. So actually, it will be in the French interests as well. We've got a situation at the moment, Matthew, where this crisis is so great, the whole Schengen system within the Eurozone is breaking down. Borders are being put up within the EU, for heaven's sake. This has got to be sorted. I'd just say, Richard, that I'm not actually in favour of the boats because who reasonably could be? It's a very dangerous mechanism by which to reach a country. So, of course, I want the boats to stop. But I would just say this. A, I have a lot of empathy for those trying to get to this country, both people who are genuine asylum seekers and those who are so desperate for a better life that they are prepared to risk their lives. So I think the humanity of those people involved is important and we do need proper safe routes to this country. And the second thing I would just reiterate, I think it is cloud cuckoo land 
to believe that the French would put up with this. Fantastic if they did and if it could be done safely and legally, but I don't think they will. And therefore, you would. So, run what the are they going to do, Matt? Well, you would what run the. Do? You would run the. You would. Well, it's it's a very good question, but well, I don't well, think you, in so grown-up diplomacy they would. It would happen, and therefore, you as a politician, if you became prime minister, you'd be in the same position as Rishi Sunak, as having over-promised. Absolute nonsense, right? They're not going to shoot us. They're going to do a deal with us. It is as simple as that, but it requires political courage. And you then demonstrate to everybody across the whole of the European Union, this is how you stop thousands of people every year dying in the Med. I tell you, this winds me up because this failure of political will and leadership is an absolute shameful disgrace. Okay, my final question will be about you as a person and how you wind down and how you enjoy life and all the rest of it. But before we do that, we have to grapple with this final, very important issue. We have limited questions, otherwise we could talk for hours. What do you say to those who see your party as far right? And can you reassure those who might want to vote for your party that you are absolutely not a racist party and that you, Richard Tice, can right here, right now on the 20 Questions with podcast, tell people unequivocally that you absolutely condemn any form of racism? Uh, Firstly, of course, I completely unequivocally condemn any forms of racism. Let's get that absolutely clear. Uh, Secondly, those who dislike my policies, of course, they'll try and smear us and call us all sorts of labels and stuff. But look, I I just put forward policies, as I believe, are suitable for the British people. And uh, that's the, the truth is that we are making progress. Two years ago, we were basically nowhere in the polls. Everybody thought. I was a joke and mad for, for doing what I was doing. Here we are now. We're 10%, 11%. I think we might be 12% after Christmas. We're gaining ground. And, and that's because, actually, our policies across the piece, whether it's the economy, whether it's net zero, whether it's having the ambition to get to zero waiting lists uh, on migration, uh, on gender ideology that we haven't touched on, that might be for another day. Our policies are resonating with people. And democracy works better, Matthew, when there's more debate about difficult, uncomfortable issues in a sensible, rational way. And, and that's what I'm here to do. And then, and then the people will vote. And uh, that's a key thing. But look, I, I'm, as I say, I'm less interested in titles for me personally. And people who dislike us will label us fine. But, but actually, do you know what? Never underestimate the gut instinct of the decent British voter. They know that all that's nonsense. And I so think you would respect be, that I've got a view. You would be equally happy, Richard, living as a Londoner, as you are now. I think you were born in Surrey. But you're a Londoner like me now. You would be equally happy living in London if it were to be a non-majority white city as you would be living in London as a majority white city. In other words, the colour of skin, the, the racial the, makeup of your city, of, of our capital city, doesn't matter to you. Look, it doesn't matter to me. It's not about the colour of the skin. It's about, it's, about, it's about who we are as a nation. It's about our British culture, our heritage, our history, where we've come from and how we can make progress and how we can improve the lives of all British citizens. However people uh, have, have arrived here, have, have been born here, developed here, whatever. The role of government is to improve the lives of uh, the citizens in that country, whichever country it is. And, and I think we, we've got so much to be proud of. I'm just very sad that after 13 years of this, uh, this sort of conservative regime, the country's in a, a far worse state. It's as simple as that. Can you reassure Muslim voters that they are safe or would be safe to vote for Reform UK? 
110%, and indeed many Muslim voters are already joining as members and are voting for us up and down the country because we've been standing in council seats, in by-elections, in mayoral seats. And I get stopped by lots of people of a whole variety of ethnicities saying, thank you for standing up for the British citizens and thank you for, for telling it as it is. So you can hear and now again on the 20 Questions with podcast firmly reject Islamophobia. I absolutely firmly reject it completely, uh, totally. You know, I just think that we've got to, um, we've just got to focus on what is right for all British people. And what I want, though, is people to, to unify under a proud involvement with our British culture and and who we are and our values as a as a nation, and you know, I, I do have a view that multiculturalism. In fact, Tony Blair said it. David Cameron said it. Uh, Lu- Louise Casey, who did the review, said it. Multiculturalism has failed. Where people live in individual silos, you want people to engage with their communities, their societies, and be proud of and, and involved in the success of a nation. People could look that up about Blair and Cameron and, and Louise Casey and so forth. But I do want to sort of press you on on this you talk about British values and being proud of British culture would you agree with me that the British Empire was a bad thing because it it involved us as Brits invading other countries taking over other countries without consent is that the end of the question well there's a second part to it which is I wanted you to define British values which I would define loosely to the extent that they exist as inclusive generous those sorts of those sorts of um, I, I'm not in any way embarrassed by our heritage, our history. I think we've got huge amounts to be incredibly proud of what we've uh, what we've helped the world, how we've helped develop the world, our involvement in the Industrial Revolution. But of course, bad things happen. Bad things happen from all uh, all nations that had a sort of a a colonial aspect. Um, but but I think we've got way way more to be incredibly proud of than we have in terms of lessons to learn from, and in terms of the British values, what does that actually mean? I think it stands for that sense of, um, of fairness, of, uh, of, of decency, of compassion, of trust, of, um, uh, I, I, I said compassion. And I think, here's the thing, cricket started here in the UK and the rules of cricket involve, uh, yes, it's competitive and there's a bit of banter on the pitch, but actually, it's about fairness and fair play. And so you ask yourself that simple question, is it cricket? And I think that actually, it may sound a bit old fashioned and old quirky, but it goes to the heart of who we are. Um, we believe in fair play. It's why we've actually, we're so respected around the world for our legal system, for example. I think that's part of who we are. And I think that's what we want to try and and grow and develop. And and it is perf- really, really important. It's perfectly possible, isn't it? Both to be ashamed and proud of our history. It, it's not an either or. These culture wars, they're distracting from the common sense position, which is that you can be ashamed of our colonial legacy and very proud of some of the things that we have achieved in our past, but not, least, not least fighting back against Nazism and fascism. Exactly. The, the, my, my key point, though, is that... I'm far more proud of the incredible successes that we've had as a nation over centuries than things that we've got wrong and lessons where we need to learn. And, and, and let's remember where we've got things wrong, for example, on slavery, it was the UK that actually led the way 
in abolishing slavery and, and defending the high seas from slavery at great financial and, um, and physical cost to, to British citizens at the time. We were instrumental in, in slavery in the first place, of course, so we could have a long debate about that. Yeah, but, but, let, but the point was we learned the lesson and then dealt with it. That's the finish. key point. Let's finish by asking you, as I said, about you as a person. Who are you, Richard? What do you love in in life? Do you, like me, love cricket? And it's almost as though you're trying to convert me to becoming a Reform UK voter, which I definitely (laughs) have not been converted, but I do love cricket. What what sort of gets you going in your life? And how do you find time for any of that when you are a busy businessman? I assume you are still a businessman and also a busy politician and indeed present shows on GB News. It's fair to say I am busy, but I'm a great believer in... Uh, you work hard and play life. So you work hard, play hard, and I like to be busy. So, yeah, there's there's not much downtime, and I have sort of got three jobs. But I'm very lucky, Matthew. I've, I'm healthy, and whilst you've got health, if you've got a strong view, you want to contribute, you want to get stuck in, that's who I am, that's, that's what I do. And But in my spare time, I love sports. I, I enjoy cricket. For my sins, I'm a Liverpool fan in, in, uh, in the world of soccer. Well, so and, you say for your sins. I mean, Liverpool have got a genuine tilt at the title this year. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it requires a lot of patience being a Liverpool fan. But anyway, and then uh, I, I've, over the years, I've done some extreme sports like uh, skiing and the like. So, yeah. Just as an addendum, it is an important point just to finish. And thank you for your time. How rigorously will you be vetting your Reform UK Yeah, it's candidates. a really good point. So, and thank you for asking that. We, just to, to reiterate, we stand in every seat in England, Scotland and Wales. We've got about 430 candidates as you speak. Of course, they're all vetted. And uh, we've got another couple of hundred going through the system. And that vetting process, I think, is good. It's rigorous. And, and we reject people who, who are not appropriate. It's inevitable in any main political party, Matthew, out of 630 people, the odd, the odd person will say or write something daft, stupid, uh, or, or patently wrong. And we will be as as rigorous and rapid, if not more so, than any other party in calling that out and and uh, forcing them out. Of, of that, you can be sure. But look, we, we will hold you to that. And, and we'll hold, and quite, we'll hold you to right, some of the things you've said in this interview as well. Quite right, and quite rightly so. And as I say, in 630 people, all the parties, you'll have someone who will say, uh, or write something completely inappropriate and wrong. That's the nature of it. But I, I'm I'm pretty confident in our betting system. Very confident in our betting system, and that is a it's an ongoing process. Because what happens is that you get that number of people inevitably, even when you've got to your six thirty, for whatever reason, a few people will drop out. So it's a never ending sort of cycle. It's just just the nature of it. And if people listen to this podcast in the build up to the next election, whenever it is, they'll be able to look up online, see who the other candidates are who are running against you or that you're running against to become an MP. Absolutely right. And anything, I mean, I can't fact check our interview as we go along, but people can check for themselves. Richard Tice, it's been really interesting having you on. And there is just one final point, actually, which is if you look at our website now, anybody listening, you can see the hundreds of uh, candidates who are already being allocated to seats. That's on there, so people can uh, can check them out already. So that, that process is already open and transparent. It's been very interesting 
listening to your answers to my 20 questions, I have absolutely by no means agreed with everything you've said. And I'm not a convert to Reform UK, <laughs> but I think it's an important process because, as I said at the start, you know, you are an important figure now in British politics. And you, you might end up being Keir, Sir Keir Starmer's best friend. <laughs> Richard Tice, thank you very much indeed for answering thank my you for questions. Thank you for your questions. Great pleasure.